Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Mika Simmons, and you're listening to the Happy Vagina podcast. Coming up, we have Salma Elwadani, author, groundbreaking activist, chief diversity officer, and one of the women behind the period emoji who shares her boldest ideas on faith, what the Quran really says about sex, and the power of the burqa. But before we go there, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our sponsor for this episode, Oto. Did you know a woman's sleep cycles are impacted by our fluctuating hormones? I know mine certainly are. In periods of restless sleep, I found Oto's award-winning sleep drops an absolute game-changer. Specially created to help you wind down and relax, they're blended with the perfect amount of CBD to optimise your natural sleep-wake cycle. CBD is not a sedative, but instead a healthy, sustainable and natural way to help the body effectively process stress and anxiety. In turn, rebalancing hormone levels and improving sleep patterns, leaving you feeling more calm, focused and productive, especially when taken as part of a daily routine. You can find them at www.otocbd.com or click on the link in the episode notes. Then use the code THEHAPPYVAGINA20 to get 20% off. That's www.otocbd.com. Oto, my go-to for an enhanced healthy sleeping rhythm. Welcome to The Happy Vagina, a podcast dedicated to celebrating pioneers in the female space, those who've made a difference in women's health, equality, and relationships. Each week, we chat to an inspiring human as they explore the experiences that completely change their outlook, promising not only to educate, but also to entertain and enlighten. And this week... On the Happy Vagina podcast, I am literally beside myself. We are joined by Selma Elwadani, who is a writer, a poet, a presenter, also chief diversity officer. She's a groundbreaking activist who helped put the period emoji on the map. (laughs) There is nothing that this woman cannot do. She also speaks at length and very passionately about the role of feminism within the Muslim community. Salma, welcome to the Happy Vagina. Thank you. It is delightful to be here. And there is no better podcast that I want to be on than one that has vagina in the title, quite frankly. At the beginning, when we were chatting about doing this together, I said to Salma, should we, um, so I really want to talk about your book because obviously it's like breaking some boundaries around Muslim women. And should we talk about periods? And I got this text that was like, I think we need to talk about sex and pleasure. And I was like, Oh my God, this is going to be so good. So buckle up everyone, because we are going to do a deep dive into what it is to be a woman in general, because Mm. these topics are actually relevant for everyone. But I would share with you that in my research for this episode, I've been immensely moved 
by the strides that you're taking for Muslim women, because it is a different conversation. And the work there does have a vulnerability and a tenderness to it that perhaps maybe you could say other communities don't have so much anymore. But we're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to that because before we do anything else, because you do like talking about pleasure and sex and periods, we are going to start with the very binary, happy vagina, fast question quiz, either or. Are you ready? Yes, I love these. Yes, go. I'm so okay. I myself in. <laughs> actually, yeah, someone's actually now got like bondage equipment on. <laughs> Can you imagine? Some handcuffs. Let's go. This is going in a direction that I did not imagine. <laughs> it's and be... yet, here we are. <laughs> okay, let's get going. Salma, brief or G-string? G-string. Ah, interesting choice. Always? Has it always been like that? No, I think when I, when I was growing up, my mother was pretty set on the briefs. But as I, as I was then able to afford my own underwear, it's G-string all the way. And is that a retaliation against your mother? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to revolt against my parents by wearing thongs in G-string. There's nothing they can do about it. No, it's purely pragmatic because I can't bear a nickeline. I can't think of anything that ruins an outfit more than a nickeline. So I will shove that material up my arse to avoid that. Mm. You have to wear them big, I find. I always go up one or two sizes. But can I just ask you, because is it a stereotype and a prejudice, this conversation that is kind of floats around that women in the Muslim community who wear the hijab are wearing the most exquisite underwear underneath it? (laughs) I mean, I've been told that by so many people. Is that just a whole load of nonsense? I think it's a very orientalist lens at which you're looking at Muslim women and women from the Eastern world, right? Because it's very Edward Said orientalism, which was his seminal text. And it's very much this idea that there is this desire from men in the Western world to lift the veil and see what wonders lie beneath, right? And of course, yeah, there are lots of women who wear the hijab and who wear full length um, abayas and underneath it they are wrapped in silk and lace and the most exquisite you know lingerie but there's also women who wear it and are wrapped in like Marks and Spencer's cotton knickers you know like it's exactly the same as whether you were to say are all women under their clothes wearing lace and silk no some women aren't some women aren't Mm. it's a stereotype essentially include as per the one that all French women are really well dressed I've been to France they're not Exactly. And it's also this idea of this hypersexualization of women of color, right? That they Mm. are all these Mm. very exotic, gorgeous creatures who are just there for the purpose of desire and sex, which of course is Mm. not true because they're all very multifaceted and different. Mm. Well, I also felt when I first heard it was that's bullshit. You're just saying that to make it okay. And we will come back to talk about clothing for women and how Mm. you feel about about women needing to cover up a bit later in the podcast. But my initial thought was, has that myth been created to try and justify that somehow or other it's okay to ask a woman to cover up? And and I don't know where I sit on it. As I said, we're going to come back to it. Let's stick with the quiz for now. Yes. Next question, Brazilian or Bush? Brazilian for me, personally. I mean... It's just a personal preference, isn't it? I mean, I think this is for every woman, depending on the stages of their life. It's Bush to Brazilian to Hollywood to this to that. Depends on your mood Mm, mm. and whether you're going on the beach. Mm, Seasonal, definitely seasonal. (laughs) Yeah. 
Do you get impacted if you're in a relationship? I do. I'm, I'm ashamed to say. When you're younger and you're just starting out your romantic relationships, you have a tendency to ask a man, oh, what do you prefer? As if that question should ever be broached to a man. Because I don't think that, I think there's some questions men should never be asked because they should never weigh in their opinion on because it's completely irrelevant. But I have done it as well. I'm totally guilty of it. Well, what do you prefer? And then I do remember a stage where I decided that that was never going to be a question I would ask anymore. And it would be completely based on my whim. Oh, I love that. How old were you when you made that decision? I was, I mean, old. I'd been dating a fair while. I was living in London. I was working the corporate grind. I must have been 27, 26. So powerful, aren't they? It's like just after I left drama school, I was reading a women's magazine and I expressed to a girlfriend that, that the women's magazine made me feel less than. And she was like, oh, I stopped reading those when I was 13. She And I've never picked up a women's magazine. And actually a friend of mine went in to be editor of a really big, kind of like glossy. And it was quite cross of me because I was like, no, I'm not buying it. I'm just not buying it. It doesn't mean I won't like dip into it online and have a little look at different articles mm. online, but I don't buy a magazine that I'm going to flick through and feel like there's a life that I should be having that I'm not having or that I can't afford or that I don't look like. I'm just, I'm just not doing it. So that's my moment like yours when you were like, I am never, ever going to ask a man again. Also, it's a bit weird, isn't it? When people have like a really strong preference because actually they should just be, which I felt in your novel really came through this idea of, of love winning because love is a visceral response. Love is, you know, sex and love should be because you desire the inside of the person, not what they look like. Right. You know, you can go into conversations about sex, pleasure and kinks, and you might want either to have a Brazilian or a Hollywood based on whatever it is that you are fantasizing about. And I really understand that. And that might ebb and flow in a relationship and it might be different, but ultimately it can never be, well, I only like it when it's like this. So you need to go to the salon every two weeks to get your vagina waxed. And also when were the men ever asking us what we prefer? Mm. I've never had a man turn around to me in all my years of dating and sex and say, just want to check what would you like down here? Would you like me to shave it all off, trim it off or go completely overgrown? I do share with my partner sometimes what I prefer in that, in that. So I'm, it's interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to do a little bit of research on myself on, on that, but we're going to move on to the next question. Tampon or moon cup? Tampon. And I, I feel so bad for saying it because my friend... You've got tampon shame. I have tampon shame. Tampon, no! I know. <laughs> and do you know what? I have my tampons in a glass jar in the bathroom, like a sweetie jar, because I want them to be really visible. And also, I think I really like the aesthetic of like lots of different colored tampons in a glass jar in my bathroom, like a sweetie jar. And my friend comes in all the time and she's like, for God's sake, Salma, the environment, the planet, you need to get a moon cup. You need to be on this. And I appreciate the environmental argument for it. But also logistically in my head, I cannot be rushing around in a shopping center and then jumping out of a cubicle with a cup full of blood to try and wash it out to then pop it back in. I completely agree with you. I completely agree. And I'm sorry that you are being judged. If your friend is listening, stop judging. <laughs> Yes, Fiona. I'll name you. Fiona. <laughs> and give give me a call, Fiona. We need to speak. Next question. Clitoral or G-spot? Clitoral. Me and my clit are in a, a loving, trusting relationship. Are you? We're very close. Are you? 
and has it always been that way for you? Has it been a journey to, would you feel that you've always been able to kind of access pleasure and sometimes climax through clitoral stimulation? Yeah, it's always been that way. And I think when you're starting off as a young woman and you're, you're experimenting with your body and you're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't and where the pleasure point is, there's obviously a journey to that. But then I quickly realized that my pleasure point was my clitoris and that I was never going to have orgasms from sexual intercourse and that that just, that's not a thing. Well, I never have so far. And that just wasn't something that was going to happen for me. And so therefore this part of my body was going to be very important. Mm-hmm. And do you know about the most kind of recent research that has discovered almost definitely that the clitoris is actually the front of the G-spot so that the clitoral nerves go back through the vagina wall? You, you've read about that. Yeah. So, so, so even though you know that, you at this stage in your life, because I can promise you it changes. Oh, I can't wait. I'm sitting here <laughs> as an example of someone who did not used to have G-spot orgasms and now does. And then June Sarpong told me about blended orgasms and I hadn't really used vibrators. Yeah. But now I need to use vibrators as well to do both at the same time. But have you, do you know about that anatomical, to be honest with you, it's still that specific anatomical information still does not equate that every single woman will be able right. to feel sensation, pressure, or reach climax through her G-spot. But you knew about that. Yes. And listen, if you tell me it changes and it develops, then you're my hope. You're my shi- you're hmm. my knight in shining armor. I, and, and do you know what? I'm here for the journey. Let's keep going. Let's keep discovering all the ways we can climax and have pleasure. And it does change because so much of sex is also in your head. So, so much of it is happening mentally. And as you change and as you become more comfortable or more in tune or it's always in flux. So it's one of the most exciting journeys of my life. I can't wait to have orgasms 70 different ways as I get older. Such a great answer. Thank you so much. Final question. Vibrator or vegetable? I have questions about this question. I did have a girlfriend once who told me about some time with a cucumber when she was young and experimenting. It's not unusual. Vibrator every time all the time, all the way. I've ne- personally never used a vegetable. So you and you find vibrators a good, a good alternative to the hand or a penis, someone else's hand, someone else's tongue. No, I find that if you are having sex with someone and you are, you trust each other and you can bring in vibrators, yes, then you have a wonderful time because then you've got tongues, hands, vibrators, you've got the whole sweet shop and you always want that. But if I'm by myself alone, I'm always going to use my vibrator over my hand because A, maybe I'm lazy, Mika, I don't know. Um, And B, I don't know, it's a lot of work. Sometimes you just quick and go, you haven't got time. You've got to leave the house in 10 minutes. So you just need to bash it out nice and quickly. If there's anyone out there who's been wanting to explore introducing toys into their relationship, have you got any ideas on how they could do that? Yeah, and I think for me, what I will say is, I've had the experience of bringing toys into the bedroom with people that I've had a one night stand with and with long-term partnerships. Right. Mm. So it hasn't been a set rule that you have to be in this really long relationship. I remember just having a one time fling with someone and he brought out all these toys and he was someone who I think had a problem with premature ejaculation that he couldn't sustain. And I had so much respect for him, by the way, I never talked to him again because I just had no desire to, but I had the most respect for him because he knew his shortcomings and he knew where things might go wrong for him in that 
it could all be over very quickly without his partner receiving any kind of pleasure. And so he had this box of toys ready to make sure that his partner was completely pleasured for the duration. And then it was only after hours and hours that he then Mm. pleasured himself. So I think that was just the most forward thinking man that I had met in that department. In terms of if you want to introduce it with with your partner or within your life, I think it is, and everyone will tell you this, and I'm sure you would say exactly the same, it starts with conversation. Don't spring something on someone unawares because being intimate with someone is a vulnerable place to be, right? But I think if you're in a, I would say if you're in a long-term relationship with someone and you feel like you can't broach the subject of bringing vibrators or sex toys into your sexual relationship, there is a lot more going on there that you probably need to address and have a really long conversation because you should be able, this is what I believe, you should be able to bring every fantasy, want, desire, sordid dream you've ever had, you should be able to bring that in safety with your partner. And Mm. if you can't, I would say there's bigger things going on there. Mm, so I did tell everyone to buckle up, but my gosh, I think that's just so beautiful. Thank you so much. Obviously you've got a hundred percent on the quiz about yourself. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> yes. I am an overachiever. <laughs> Tick. But you're also uh, very sure about things. Have you, have you always been that sure or has that been a work in progress for you in terms of finding your voice? Or, or do you feel like that's, you've been pretty confident. I, I know it ebbs and flows. I'm not, I'm not suggesting you don't have days, but in terms of you knowing what you want and what you like and what you want to do, have you always been quite clear? Yes. I've always been a very confident person and people will often ask me and especially women and they will say, how did you become okay with yourself and your body and your ambitions and your dreams? Mm. And what I will say is confidence is a practice that you have to, it's a habit that you have to work on every single day. It's not something that happens accidentally. And also what I will say, and I I do believe that this is why I'm so confident is that I didn't go to school. So I was home educated. So from about the ages of six to 16, I was not in the education system. And so I completely sidestepped peer pressure, what you should be looking like about the cringe and the embarrassment when your boobs start to come through and everyone starts talking about it. When you get your period, what you should be doing in school, who you should be kissing, that intense scrutiny that happens in, in schools on young women, especially and young girls. I did not have that Mika that completely passed me by. I grew up with a very feminist mother who kind of curated a very feminist curriculum for me. So I was, you know, 10 years old reading Virginia Woolf and Mary Wollstonecraft and learning about what it is to be a woman in the world that needs to constantly speak up. I was with my mum every day and watching her speak up and challenge men and challenge authority and watch my mum point out why people would try to dampen the spirit or the voice of a woman. And so that's how I grew up constantly. And my mum never told me I was beautiful ever. She never commented on my appearances. She told me that I was brilliant and that I had a brilliant mind and that I was smart and strong and capable. They're the things that she told me. So that's how I grew up. And I genuinely believe to my core that that is why I am as confident as I am today. Mm, So interesting. Is there a specific reason why you were being homeschooled or was it just a choice? My mum is a genius and also lacks patience. So if you put those two things together and your kid comes home from school and you say to your kid, what did you learn today? And then I say, I played in the home corner. 
I played in the sand pit because you're five and six, right? Mm. And my mum, my mum was kind of like, you're an idiot. I can teach you more by myself. And she doesn't fully agree with the education system. She didn't think it would benefit me and my brother in the right way. She was like, I can do it better. So she did. Mm. I'd like to adopt your mum, please. And you. I think I'd like to have sex with you and adopt your mum. <laughs> Done. That's, you know. I, I'm, just I'm actually not from... gay, but that was kind of, I was thinking, yes, that this, this, this might work. We could get married, maybe. Anyway, look, the thing is about you and your confidence is you wrote an essay, which is phenomenal. Agenda denied, Islam, sex, and the struggle to get some. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Which is the most fun quirky in your face title ever there's no subtlety to it <laughs> no subtlety but funny you know it's good it's 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 real and i know that's as we've already mentioned at the beginning it's one of your main through lines is to try and bring the real into the stereotypes and some of the prejudices against muslim women but you open that essay by describing and talking about your first ever sexual experience of intercourse so the way you describe it is when you lost your virginity of course we know that virginity is a social construct anyway and I think the suggestion is that we now which I love is that we talk about it the first time I had sex rather than losing anything but in this essay that that was the way that, that you talked that you talked about it and I just oh, I mean did you Okay, did it go like this? Fuck, fuck, fuck. Am I going to talk about losing my virginity in this essay? Is that what I'm going to open with? Or was it literally you sat down and you wrote it and you never, ever had a thought of... Because when I'm writing about stuff that's very personal to me, I don't vet myself, as you can tell. I'm like, <laughs> However, if I'm writing and I know it's going to go out there and it will impact people around me, it's going to impact my family, it's going to impact people that care about me, partners, etc. I have an eye on, on what I'm saying. Did you do that or did you have no questions at all about opening with this discussion about losing your virginity? I had no questions. I sat down, mm. that essay poured out of me in maybe two hours and then I stood up from the table and it was done. Mm. What I loved about the essay, that further on into it, you actually say that you spoke to 200 women. You said for the purpose of the essay, I spoke to over 200 Muslim women across the globe and there wasn't one single one who felt, I feel so emotional about it who felt that she had a place within her community to talk about sex and Islam. So you say it poured out of you, but you're very thorough. And I know that you're, that you don't just write without actually doing, doing the research. And you've also just mentioned that your family is not conventional. So in a way you've potentially been given an opportunity to talk about sex at home. Is that right? No, absolutely not. No, my family, I guess, are not conventional, but also very religious and quite strict in their religious views and have different religious views. And they, my mum and my dad, they practice their Islam in very different ways to the way that I do it. You know, my mum still wears a hijab. She is a veiled woman. She wouldn't go out in the clothes that I go out. They, you know, they both live their Islam in very different ways to me. And I know they disagree with the way that I do it sometimes, but of course, they are still there loving me and, and being supportive regardless. And, uh, you know, you said there that you have that thought when you're writing something about people that it may impact in your circle. And I only have one rule as a writer. And that rule is you never write for anyone else. You only write for yourself. And the minute you are considering what's this person going to say when they read it and what's my mum going to say 
And what's my ex going to say if he reads it by chance? The minute you do that, you're no longer writing for yourself. You're writing for someone else. And that is a rule that I refuse to break. And so when I sit down pen to paper, I am writing for me and my experiences. And that will impact Mm. and fall as it may. That's really amazing. Yeah, but we didn't talk about sex. No, there was a very hurried conversation about the birds and the bees with my mum at one stage, but we certainly never spoke about it. And I'm sure both my parents would love it if I talked about it a lot less. (laughs) (laughs) So I suppose the description at the beginning of this essay is your experience of having sex for the first time. And you describe it really as being close to God and that you felt very in alignment. To me, what I got was it was a spiritual experience. And then you go on to say that it was only afterwards when you told your girlfriends who asked you, do you feel guilty? And have you prayed that you started to understand that actually what you'd just done was something wrong? Just for people, because I I think we're going to have a lot of people listening that don't know much about Islam, that don't know much about your culture. What is the message or teaching around having sex outside of wedlock, having sex at all? What are, what are the teachings around sexual relations for women in the Muslim community? Because I also want to know if it's the same for men. Pretty much the same as every, you know, major religion, whether that's Catholicism, Christianity today, is that you do not do it. You do not have sex before marriage. Okay. That's the general teaching. And I find that universal. You know, when this essay was published, Agenda Denied, I had an influx of Catholic women who reached out to me and said, I'm not Muslim, I'm Catholic, but this is exactly my experience. And I related so much because in the church and in my family, we didn't talk about sex. Sex was never discussed. You weren't supposed to do it outside of wedlock. But of course, me and my girlfriends were. And then we found we didn't have safe spaces to go to, to talk about it. So I think it's the same across all major religions. And, and people who are listening now who are part of those other religions will probably be nodding along. So the teaching is you don't do it. You don't have sex before marriage. And that's the same for men and women in Islam. The, the men aren't supposed to be doing it. The women aren't supposed to be doing it. But of course, you have Islam and the theology. And then you have the patriarchal scholarship that has informed Islam because nothing exists in isolation and we've all been ruined by the patriarchy. And the patriarchy has infiltrated every single major religion and twisted the rules and twisted the messaging and the teachings to fit their narrative. That's the same across everyone. So in Islam, the men in in the community and the Muslim men and the Muslim scholars, they don't talk about it. They don't talk about the importance of pleasure for a woman. And yet, in the Quran, which is the book, our holy book that we you know, live and die by, there is a verse that says a woman is entitled to leave her husband if he is not sexually satisfying her. But that is ground enough for divorce. If he is not doing his duty and pleasuring her sexually, she can leave him without question. That's the religion. That's what it says. But it's also... The, the verse that all of the, the male scholars in Islam conveniently ignore. That's nuts. When it says a wife can leave her husband if he's not pleasuring her, what does that mean? What are they talking about pleasure? Are they talking about just having sex? Because some of like the ye olde language in all the religions was you must bed your partner. Like, mm. Do they mean that? Or do they mean something much more sensual than that? That actually you should be prioritizing your wife's pleasure. I mean, what's your reading of it? What do you think they really meant? I think it's exactly that. When you look deep down into it, Islam is this really sexually forward 
religion. And yes, they did frame that conversation in the paradigm of marriage, but it's not just bed your wife, bed your husband. It was very much pleasing her and doing the things that she wanted to do. And that that was a requirement on a husband, that that was one of his duties and obligations was to give his wife what she wanted physically in the bedroom. Mm. That's the faith. But we've ignored that completely because the patriarchy has ruined everything. Well, it's so interesting as well, because at the beginning of my book that's about to come out, The Happy Vagina, I do a, a romp through the potted history of women's health and kind of what went wrong. It's short form, lots of kind of fun facts. I mean, it's a bit like a soap opera. I go, I jump centuries. It's like, and then this happened. <laughs> there were a few hundred years in between, but this is the next terrible thing or amazing thing that happened. Yeah. You know, I opened it talking about the fact that women were actually held up as goddesses, you know, before the current medical system and the patriarchy, which was basically came out of, you know, the industrial revolution when we all kind of moved into 2.4 families and also, uh, mm. you know, the, just the church wanting to control essentially, you know, the, the, there were all of these carvings on, so you had the Sheena gigs, which were the, they're these carvings in European, but mostly Irish walls of churches and castles with these, these illustrations, carved illustrations of women opening their vulva. And for a long time, they said it was to kind of scare people off. And actually, they're now starting to find out that they think that they were considered to be goddesses of fertility. And that if you cross the line, then you would have, you know, a, lo a long fertility. And then you've also got the skirt raising, which is Anyasara, which is the, the idea that when a storm was coming, if women stood and showed them their vulva and their pubic area, then the, then the storm would go away. And of course, it's, it's hocus pocus because we all know however powerful a vagina is, it is not going to get rid of a storm. So of course, it was, it was myth <laughs> and it was that kind of old God-adhering kind of, um, you know, it, it was mad, actually. They were all completely crazy, mm. but they didn't have the knowledge that we have now and they didn't have the internet. So we will leave them to have it. However, the truth is, is that women used to be held. So I'm not surprised at the Quran because women did used to be held in the very, I open the book by saying women used to be held in the very highest of esteems. And look, and look where we are now. One of the things I wanted to ask you, which is on topic for this, is around, I was thinking about, We've already touched on the kind of myth of Muslim women enjoying when hijab for the purposes of being able to like wear really sassy underwear. And we've, we've, we've cancelled that out. But there is this other kind of, I was thinking, what do I think the stereotypes are that I've learned along the way about, about Muslim women? And I think that there's two, there's two main ones that come through. And one is that they're hard done by and that somehow or other they're, being locked away in the clothing, but also in the house and, and all of that. But the other one, which I thought was quite interesting that came back into my psyche was this kind of like trope or stereotype of a really sensual being. And now talking to you about the crown, I'm wondering if it actually stemmed from that because there's also, and it's, it's actually, as stereotypes go, it's a beautiful one, but of course it is a stereotype and it's not real. And a Muslim woman is no different to a Catholic woman. To, I mean, let's even just, let's stop talking about religion stuff. You know, human beings are human beings and they're multi-complex. And on one day you can be in a goddess and the next day you can be, you know, lying in the gutter. And that's the bottom line on it. But I just wondered whether or not the divine, I think that there's something in terms of your culture and religion where there is this sensual 
being, esoteric kind of goddess type being that I've also got in my psyche. And do you think that comes from the Quran, from the the way that women are spoken about in the Quran? I mean, it could, right? And the problem is we've there's been such stereotypes around Muslim women and there's been awful stereotypes around women, right? And everything has become convoluted and twisted and there's a single story that's particularly been told about Muslim women that is really damaging, which is where the stereotype of we're all these terribly oppressed women who are being forced into headscarves and long skirts, which of course, again, is so not true because for a lot of Muslim women who wear headscarves, that is their freedom. Right. And there is a thousand and one. If you go back in history, if we do what you have done and we jump back to different centuries and decades, you know, there you will find as far back as kind of native Indians protecting their hair and covering it and it being this really powerful, magical thing. Right. So, you know, it's freedom for a lot of Muslim women. So, yeah, we have all of these horrible stereotypes. How do we piece through it to find out what's real and what isn't and what has been informed by the subconscious tellings of our culture, which is why it's so important to have more Muslim women speaking about their experiences. And that's where we've gone wrong, isn't it? We just haven't had them. We haven't had those stories out in the world. And, you know, when you spoke there about being you know, connected to the divine, that's exactly my point. And that's exactly how I ended my, my essay. And it's not about the burqa. You know, I said the fluctuations and harmonies of our physicality do not bar us entry to spirituality and faith, but rather they remind us of our relationship with the divine, which is how I I would love all of us to look at our bodies because we've been so used as women to looking at them and picking Mm. them apart and hating them and saying what's wrong with them instead of looking at your body and thinking this is divine. Look at the way my hips move. Look at the way my breasts curve. This is divinity here. And, you know, I've had, I mean, I've had some of my incredibly spiritual experiences have been naked and in the throes of passion. I have seen the face of God in some of my orgasms. You know, I have assailed to clouds of divinity. You know, we have to stop this rhetoric of sex, physicality, sinful, shameful, dirty. Because that's, that's what we do when it comes to women. Mm. We just have to get rid of all of that. And we have to let all of the female voices come through. The Muslim women, the black women, the women of color, the white women. We have to let all of those women come through so that we're not sitting here going, what's a stereotype? What isn't? Which one's true? Which one isn't? Because we wouldn't be having this conversation if we just let more women speak. Mm. Just You said something that I've not heard before. Well, you put it in a way I've not heard before. I knew that it was a stereotype, the idea that wearing a burqa would be somehow rather repressive and that it's not for everyone. I knew that, but I, I raised it on purpose so that we can unpick it. We're going to take a very quick ad break. And before we do, I wanted to let you know that this podcast was produced in association with Albright, the leading career network for women. Got a mission, a five-year plan or an outrageous dream? Albright will have your back. They had mine. Visit www.albrightcollective.com to join their free community today or download the Albright app available in the App Store. Albright, a global sisterhood for ambitious women. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you say for some women it's freedom, I know you've just described that in many ancient cultures, you mentioned the, the, the Indians, the indigenous Indians, that, that the hair was, was very powerful and so to cover it. But in the Muslim community, why does covering up equate freedom? So I would say that it doesn't, right? In that in Islam, you are not forced to cover up. So I am not wrong by not covering up. And my mother, for example, is not wrong by covering up right? And if you look at the Quran and you look at the the language, there is language of women leaving the house and wrapping a big cloth around them to cover themselves. But also take yourself back to the time, whatever century it was, you know, AD, and you have women living in the desert. They don't have the notion of indoor and outdoor clothes like we do in our modern world. You don't have that. You have very minimal clothing because of the heat. And then when you go out, you will wrap something around you to preserve yourself, right? In the same way, we probably wouldn't walk down the street in our underwear. Mm. So start to unpick it and you get to that, right? And then you get to how people have interpreted that over the years to form a headscarf or to form a long abaya, right? So it's not, I will say it's not obligatory and you don't have to do it as a Muslim woman. It's a personal choice. So when you see those Muslim women wearing headscarves, that's a personal choice that they have decided to take on. And for a lot of women, you know, they, I wore a headscarf for six years. I wore it, you know, until I decided that it wasn't something that I wanted to wear anymore. And there is a level of freedom that it gives you because suddenly, A, you don't have to worry about your hair. I will tell you that much. And I will say that my hair was in better condition when I had it veiled all the time. Mm. But also it is about, you know, for a lot of women who, who cover up completely, it is about removing yourself from the misogynistic leering and jeers and heckles that you will get walking down the street, okay? And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen or it makes you less beautiful or anything like that because there will be women covered head to toe and still get leers and jackals and heckling down the street. But I, I, the world reacts different to me when I am in a headscarf walking down the street as to when I am in hot pants and a bra walking down the street. It does. I've, I've done both. And the world has reacted differently. Mm. So for a lot of women, there's freedom in just taking away all of that worry about what is on the outside and just presenting almost themselves without that worry. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to sound trite, but my version is a tracksuit. <laughs> I'm really not, I'm really not, um, I'm really not minimizing this conversation because I think also one of the really desperately important parts of it for me that I'm in an ongoing conversation with for myself is that for six years, you covered your hair and your hair was therefore in better condition and more beautiful. Is that to be in alignment with your goddess or is that for your partner? And I think these are the things with everything to do with beauty, everything to do with beauty. It's like, who are we doing it for? So, so when we 
practice hair removal or we practice things like, are we doing it for a partner? Are we doing it for ourselves? And if we're doing it for ourselves, are we doing it for our goddess self or because some women's magazine suggested that we should do it? And I just, I find it such a potent and actually exciting area. And, and I also feel like if you are doing it for your partner, that's okay for today, as long as you're okay with it. Right. It's about making sure that what you're doing is okay for you. Exactly. You have to be okay with it. Even if you have decided that my partner likes this, so I want to do that act of love for my partner, mm. it has to come from you. Mm. There cannot be any pressure. There cannot be any repercussions if you don't. And it's the same with mm. every single beauty myth that they tell us. Do it for you mm. if you want to do it. But the minute you're doing it for someone else, we have a problem. Mm. So amazing. So sex is a topic. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you talk about in the book that you have just published is in hardback at the moment called These Impossible Things. It's got the most beautiful cover. Very bright. It is so beautiful. I love the colours and the book is absolutely beautiful too. And you you oh, you open you. you open the book by talking about whether or not people have the particular conversation between the characters in the book, because this is not, this is fiction rather than nonfiction like the essay. And you talk about whether or not it's appropriate or not to have sex during Eid and whether they do it and whether they don't do it. And I was like, oh my God, this book's going to be great. And it is, it's a phenomenal read. And it's also, it's very, again, it made me cry, you know, and, and, and you, you, you said that what you wanted to do with it was to provide a different version of faith, sex, and pleasure you know, that that particularly for Muslim women and and see it through the lens of faith or potentially to kind of like reshape it and reframe it in what faith means today. And I would just say, congratulations, you've absolutely done that. So not only was I really moved, but I also I also learned so much, you know, I learned I learned about myself as a woman. It's not it's not for Muslim women, it's for it's for all women, you know. I know we've touched on it a little bit, but what is the stereotype that you feel or you felt you need to smash in this book? So if, if like, if someone said to you, if you were to make a list or write a very short paragraph of what the thing was that you thought people perceived you and your sisters and your mother, and as I don't just mean your biological sisters, like your, your, you know, your community, yeah. what do you think people see you as? I think when people see women of faith, they immediately see all the things that you're not allowed to do, right? So, and this again goes for all faiths. So you only have to say, I'm Catholic for someone to say, oh, so you can't have sex before marriage and you're not supposed to use contraception. I'm Muslim. Oh, so you don't drink alcohol and you're not allowed to have sex before marriage. We immediately go to the things that you are restrained by because of your religion. That's our go-to, which I resent. And I think we are so bad at having conversations about faith because we equate faith with religion and religion and faith are two different things. Faith is about your personal relationship with the divine, whichever divine that might be. Religion is a little bit like a toolbox full of different tools to help you nurture your relationship with the divine. Some people need the toolbox. Some people need lots of tools out of that toolbox. Some people decide not to use many tools in that toolbox at all. And they just do it themselves. A bit like mm, DIY. I love that. That for me is the difference. And we don't, we don't talk about that, Mika. We never talk about that. So when I tell people that I'm Muslim or that my family's Muslim, they immediately start 
filtering all the stereotypes that they've heard about Muslims. Do you have to have an arranged marriage? Do you know these people? Why do ISIS do this? What You're not allowed to drink. What about if you fall in love with someone who's not Muslim? They immediately go to that, which I have really resented my whole life. And no one ever stops to say, well, let's talk about your relationship with God personally and what that does for you and what that does for your life. You are just immediately into a box of, you are not allowed to do these things. And for me, with the novel, I wanted to dismantle a lot of those. And I am particularly annoyed about the conversations that we have about sex. And I I mean this outside of my faith, even just in British culture and society, we are terrible at talking about sex and women and pleasure. And then we, when you add the intersection of culture and the intersection of religion on top of that, it gets even worse. And so I was adamant when I wrote this novel that this was going to be a novel that had three women at the heart of it who were passionate, sensual, full of desire, and who fulfilled those desires and had sex and orgasms and access pleasure, and they never felt shame, that they never felt that they had sinned, that the words sin and sex were not going to be synonymous with one another. That's what I wanted to do. And you've absolutely done that. And they're also flawed. They don't get it right all the time. You know, as, as women, they're not, they're not perfect, are they? they? They make mistakes. And it's not just a book about relationships between men and women, although I would say that is probably the, the majority of the conversations that I, that I picked up on, I suppose, are in, t- in terms of the women's relationships with the men that they're involved with. You also touched heavily on the topic of non-arranged marriage. So you've got a really beautiful story about a, a couple in there who are trying to make their way outside. One, one is Muslim and, and the other isn't. So I love that you did that. But the thing that actually touched me the most, even though there are all these strong storylines about the women and their men in their lives, is the female friendship. And I and I, I guess, cause, because I don't want to give too much away, but essentially they're very strong friends and then they're not again. And then something else happens. Yeah. <laughs> what, why was it important for you to write about female friendship? Because I have always been annoyed, Mika, that female friendship wasn't on the page. I'm annoyed with how we treat female friendships in our society as a stopgap until you get married and have kids. And then they're no longer that important. And as the years went by, I realized that the women in my life were some of the most important relationships in my life, regardless of the men who came and went. The women in my life were going to be the ones who helped me grow, who encouraged me, who supported me, who picked me up off the bathroom floor when I was there crying on the floor. And they were the ones who made me better. And I always say this, I am the woman I am today by proxy of the women I've had around me. And I wanted, and for me, this book is a love letter to female friendships and how important they are. And that even when the marriage and the men and the babies come, you are still going to need those women in your life. I love that. Thank you. I want to touch on one of the themes in the book, which is about sexual trauma. And I felt it was really brave to put that in there too. Again, there is a stereotype, although there may be some statistical evidence to it that that women who don't have the same rights as men in communities have more experience of sexual trauma. I don't know if that's true. I don't know. I mean, I I love this, this quote, which is that you and I both don't know a woman, including ourselves, who hasn't had some kind of sexual assault or trauma. And that can be minimal to someone trying to put their hand up your skirt when you haven't invited them in a bar or or pinch your bum through to, to, to much, much worse. But I think just because people haven't 
read the book yet. Perhaps you could just say a little bit about that storyline and what happens. Yeah, so this is uh, this is a storyline that happens with one of my characters, one of the main protagonists in the book. And it happens one night. And it doesn't happen in a way that we are used to or that we are told in that sexual assault looks like this because we're told it looks like a stranger grabbing you and raping you or a stranger grabbing you and performing assault of some kind. That's what we're told it looks like. It's very black and white. We know we know what it looks like. We know what to call it. But with my protagonist in the book, there is more murky ground, I should say. It exists in the gray area where even my protagonist asks herself the question, did it? I'm not sure. Maybe that was my fault. Maybe maybe I was the reason that that happened. Maybe I could have done something. Maybe I should have spoken up. I did instigate this. I did start this. So what right do I have to to say no halfway through? And and actually, I'm not I'm not quite sure if that is something that happened, right? And I find that the majority of female experience exists in this insidious gray area, in this murkiness of I'm not sure if that's assault. I'm not sure if that's abuse. I'm not sure if that's gaslighting. I'm not sure if that's okay. That's what the majority of women live through every single day. And I wanted to confront that. And I wanted to show as well that when these things happen and when women are put in those painful gray areas, how detrimental it can be to their life and how they can begin to unravel, especially when they don't have their women there to help guide them through it and talk them through it and figure out what actually happened. And just how it can really begin to pull at your edges and all these little things that happen to women over and over and over again and how it can just beat Mm -hmm. you down. You mentioned that you were educated at home, so that protected you to a certain degree from... So at my school, for example, the boys thought that it was a cool thing to pin you down on the school field and try and put their hand up your skirt. I mean, you know, that was the stuff that we were dealing with when I was at school. And, and, I, and I hope and I pray things have changed. I think they have in some areas of the world and, and not others. And some areas of the UK and not others. I think that there is progress being made. But not going to school, I'd imagine you didn't experience those things. But when you started to date, did you find it easy to navigate your levels of consent personally, Salma? Like, did you find that the confidence you spoke about at the beginning bled through? Because I suppose, I think, and I'm, and I'm speaking as I think, I think some of those experiences I had at school were what created that grayness you're talking about. I think the reason that I don't know what's okay and what's not okay and why it's taken most of my life to work it out and I still don't always know is because my early experiences were quite brutal you know because that's just what was going on like does it give you more confidence sexually personally to have not have gone through those things or have you personally experienced what your character goes through in the book where you've had a situation where you're not sure I think you know, having that different childhood and not being in school and not having the experiences that you've had, I think, yes, it does. It changes things in that, you know, you start with more confidence, right? So you enter the game with more confidence, I would say. But like I said, nothing exists in isolation and we're all products of our environment. And even though my mum raised me in this wonderful feminist bubble, I was not immune to the habits and teachings of our society. And so the patriarchy infiltrates like Mm. something poisonous and it slowly comes through because no one is lucky enough to escape it. So I found that as I got older and the more, uh, you know, the more sexual experiences I had, 
I found it harder actually, because you've now been kind of chewed up and spat out by the patriarchy a few times. And if anything, that's denting your confidence every single time. And for a really long time, I was adamant that I was going to be a virgin when I wed, that I was going to hold on to my virginity until my wedding night. Interesting. And I was adamant on that for a really long time. And I fell in love in university with my first love. And, you know, for a year of our relationship, I was like, nope, we're not having sex. It's not something that I'm, I want to do until I'm married. And my boyfriend at the time was as understanding as he should have been. It just wasn't a problem for him, you know? And I was very much that I'm going to do everything but mm. woman, right? Everything but. So we can do foreplay and we can have sex in this way, but we can't have intercourse because that's always been the thing that you're, that's forbidden, that you're absolutely not supposed to do. And you are a product of your environment, like I said. So you're now suddenly obsessed with being a virgin on your wedding night, which is what all of our culture from Shakespeare to today will shove down our throat. And so my lines were very firm then. And, you know, I was very much like, no, it goes up to this point. And then, and I was very vocal about it and people mm. responded well to that. And then there came a point in my relationship that I decided I didn't want to want to do that anymore. And then I, you know, and I spoke about this in the essay, you know, I lost my virginity with my, my first love. And it was this beautiful, gorgeous, incredible, wonderful experience. And that mm. I know is not the norm. And it was one of the sweetest experiences of my life. And then as you know, and time passed and I left university and that relationship ended and I dated and had other relationships and dated some more. And I found it actually got harder and it became more murky and more difficult. And I've had experiences like that for sure. And I just thought, Christ, I don't know what just happened there. And I feel so battered and bruised by mm. the world telling you that everything you do is wrong and that you're wrong for wanting things and that you're wrong for wanting better. I remember this one experience when I was having sex with someone who we had a casual arrangement. We didn't want to date one another, but we physically enjoyed one another. And I must have been in my late 20s, Mika. And I remember we were having sex mm. and he must have seen something on my face. And he stopped halfway through and he looked at me. He sat me down on the side of the bed and he looked at me and he said, we never do anything if it hurts you. If it hurts, we stop. Because we have been taught by our society that we grit our teeth and that we bear it and that we just wait. And if it's hurting a bit, we just, just push through. Mm. And I had been pushing through and it was painful. That position was painful for whatever reason, right? And I remember it just rocked my world. And it also broke my heart that I had to learn this from a man and that I couldn't have said it myself, that I was devastated, that I wasn't the one to turn around to him and say, hey, this is hurting me, so we're not going to do it. Mm. You know, I had to learn that from him noticing and then stopping. And he's the exception to the rule because men don't notice normally and they don't stop. Mm. I think it's really exquisite that you learned that from a man and actually a really important message because the polarization between men and women all genders you know at the moment is is so rife that I think it's it's a really positive message to share that that one of the men yet another one that you did not marry even though <laughs> he was able to hold you in that space and I you know and and, and I and I'm sure that it's made you the writer that you are today with the sensuality because the book that you've written, I would just say, is it's it, there's parts of it that for me were like reading a Rumi poem. Some of the poetry and the language, uh, Salma, is 
it's just I've had to read it again and again and again and underlying bits you know it's a really beautiful piece of work congratulations and everyone should go and read it I'm I'm now I'm now like a huge fan of, of <laughs> yours and I'm looking forward to seeing what's coming <laughs> next you. we are running out of time but I do just want to touch on the period emoji because yes. I just think so so one of the things that I'm really intrigued by, and I would like to hear from you on, is the fact that women are traditionally not allowed to be part of prayer during Ramadan if they are mm. on their period. And mm. I think, is there like 1.6 billion Muslims in the world? I don't know if that's the same as with the world, that 51% of the world, the population is women. So if half of that is women, you know, do... I mean, really basic question, but do people really adhere to it? Is it some kind of archaic thing where they don't? So Islam is a religion that is about making it easier for, for all of us, right? It's about making it easier for us. So there is a story that originally God had said to his messenger, you have to pray like a hundred times a day. And he went back and said, no, it's too much. It's too hard. And this conversation went on until he got to five times a day and said, yes, that's something I can do. That's not too hard. So it, the faith and Islam is about softness. It's about compassion. It's about ease. It's about beauty. It's about peace. That's what Islam is about. The reason women don't pray when they're on their period is because they are suffering and they should be exempt from everything. That's why they don't pray. So I don't pray when I'm on my period, not because I am dirty, not because there is a lot of blood, but because there is a lot of blood and you are in pain. Because where there is a lot of blood, there is pain. So if a man was praying and halfway through the prayer, he had, for example, a massive nosebleed, he would be exempt from the prayer because he is in pain and he should not be there if he is in pain. Mm. So it's actually something really, really beautiful. And I really appreciate that I belong to a faith in which recognizes women's menstrual cycles and recognizes the pain and the lack of energy that comes with that and says, do you know what? You sit out all of this prayer. You sit out going to the mosque this week. You sit out having to get up five times a day and bend your knee in servitude to your God. Sit it all out because you are in pain and you should just rest. I think that's amazing. And I'm so pleased that's what you understanding it because I was kind of hopeful that would be the reason behind it and how many people do you think say they're on their period when they're not so that they can get out of going to mosque oh, I think some people do especially in especially in Ramadan because when you when we're fasting in Ramadan if you're on your period you don't fast either so <laughs> in Ramadan that period might go on a little bit longer than it than the, however many days it is and you are one of the people who campaigned for emoji which is the brand that looks after the emojis to have a period icon a period emoji how did that come about so i do a fair bit of work with plan uk that are a charity here that is all dedicated to the livelihood of women and girls and so they really spearheaded this campaign and asked me if i wanted to be a part of it because the global emoji keyboard is the fastest growing global language in the world wow. and it was wild that there was not an emoji that represented blood or women being on their menstrual cycle. So we all voted, you know, we had a short list, we all voted on which one we thought would be the best one. And then we all campaigned on our platforms and, and, you know, kind of raised as much awareness as we could about it until they did include it. So I'm always using that blood emoji, I just send it, which means period. <laughs> Are you on commission every time you use it? <laughs> no, but I really should be. I should be. <laughs> Salma, 
I I love it. I'm really pleased it's there. But I kind of like, I kind of want a woman with her legs up, some blood coming out. Like it's like, do you think we need like a menstrual cramp emoji or something that's a bit fiercer than what we've got? I uh my life's work is about making life better for women and girls. So if that is, yes, let's get cramp emojis, let's get a woman with her legs in the air and blood pouring out of her. Let's campaign so that women don't have to go to work when they're on their period because we should be exempt. Let's campaign for a period tax where men then give tax to women when they're on their period. Well, I'm in if you need any support with anything like that. I am your your woman. We've run out of time, but I've got one final question for you because it is the way that we always end the Happy Vagina podcast. And it is, what makes your vagina happy today? What makes my vagina happy today? I... That's such a good question. Softness, soft, gentle love of my vagina makes my vagina happy today. I always used to say that it's like a, a rose petal, just silky, smooth and soft and smells beautiful, which is the analogy that I always apply to my vagina. But as always, what makes my vagina happy is the same that makes my vagina happy every single day, which is a daily dose of masturbation. People ask me this on Instagram a lot and they message me and they say, oh my God, what's your skincare routine? I've got to know. And I say, every single day I eat cake and I masturbate. And that makes, that's good for the skin and good for my vagina. But you also glow because you're in alignment with the thing that you want to do. And so I would add to that thing that you say to those people, find out what your purpose is. And if your Mm. purpose is lying on the telly and watching daytime TV, that's fine. But find out what your purpose is. And like Salma, follow it. Because that's why this woman shines like one of the brightest stars. And we're very lucky to have had you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Selma Elwadani. I'm Mika Simmons. This is the Happy Vagina Podcast. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. And don't forget, if you'd like to enhance your natural sleep-wake cycles, I recommend Oto Sleep Drops. You can find them at www.otocbd.com or click on the link in the episode notes. Then use the code the happy vagina 20 to get 20% off that's www.otocbd.com oto my go-to for an enhanced healthy sleeping rhythm hi this is craig robinson from ways to win And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,